This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. On today's show, Britain is broken, according to everyone, including the right-wing commentators who have spent more than a decade cheering the Tories on. Is this agreement that the country is dysfunctional the death blow for Sunak? Plus, mixed messages from big tech as the online safety bill finally approaches the statute books. And in the extra bit for everybody this week, we look back to the culture of the noughties that produced Russell Brand and ask why it now looks so very cruel and grim. Let's meet the panel. Marie LeConte is a journalist and author. Hello, Marie. Hello. In a meeting with Benjamin Netanyahu, for some reason, uh, Elon Musk indicated that all users of Twitter, which he insists on calling X, will have to start paying subscription fees. Is this another Musk brainwave that's never going to happen, like removing the block function? Oh, I, so I resent, and this is not a commentary on uh, the scriptwriters of this show, but I feel like ne- <laughs> somehow nearly every time I come on, it's like, Elon Musk fucked it, Marie's comment. <laughs> um, I don't, I mean, I hope not. I think it, it's one of those, actually, what I did. I think I think there was a weird mix, timing-wise, of spending the weekend post-Russell Brand uh, allegations coming out, and when Twitter really, really became a CEO in a way that was unavoidable, immediately followed by Elon Musk saying, and by the way, you will soon have to pay for this. Uh, that really made me go, I think this is the beginning of the end. And it's actually quite interesting that so I've been on Blue Sky for quite a long time due to being very cool and young and hip, etc. So many people have flocked to Blue Sky in the past sort of three or four days. So I do think even that's the thing that even if it doesn't happen, there's a slight, you know, yeah, and we've discussed this on the podcast before, the slight like less trust premiership feeling to it, where even if only half the insane things happen, that's still quite a lot of insane things. Um, And even just having the constant stress of having the potential insane things on the horizon, I think, Mm. um, you know, will end up damaging people's confidence and willingness to kind of stay and keep posting. Jerry Scott is a political reporter at The Times. Hi, Jerry. Hello. Now, there's been a, a very messy story about a report about the EU. Um, some outlets have claimed on their front pages that the UK could rejoin as an associate member. Hooray. But Keir Starmer has ruled that out. Boo. And one of the report's authors, Nikolai von Omdaza, points out that it's not the official EU position and that it mentions the UK in just half a sentence. Is there actually anything to this story at all? Or do people just get very carried away by this uh, sort of unofficial report? I like that you called it messy. That's my favourite kind of story, a messy story uh, that keeps me busy a lot. Um, It's not that there's nothing to it, but look, this isn't official policy. Um, There are some ministers involved. People in the UK government are seeing it as a bit of kite flying to kind of put something up and see how the Labour Party here reacts. But like, it is correct, like you say, 
the UK's only mentioned in half a line, as you know, I think that's how most of Europe sees us now, mention of us in half a line. Um, We're working our way up to a full sentence. <laughs> you never know, a paragraph maybe one day, no. we can we can dream. Um, but, uh, you know, it being called Macron's onion, which I, which I quite like as a description, because you're thinking of like various layers. But I think what is particularly interesting about it to me, not isn't whether it's official policy, whether it's something that's actually happening, this conversation is being had. You know, we've seen Keir Starmer uh, doing all these European visits, and I think it's a conversation that is happening. So I think we're going to continue to see stories like this and continue to, uh, and the conversation about what our relationship was going to be with Europe, especially with a potential probable future Labour government, is going to be very interesting. Our guest this week is the founder of Fair Vote UK and the author of The Little Black Book of Data and Democracy. Tech moves fast, so that book has had a softer update and is out now under the title The Little Black Book of Social Media. Kyle Taylor uh, is joining us at a disgracefully late hour from Tokyo. Thank you so much. <laughs> Happy to be here. Speaking of fair votes, um, the Welsh government is planning to expand the size of the Senate using the Dehont system of proportional representation, the most ridiculously named system of them all. Welsh Tories are furious, even though it would probably see them gaining more seats, given that it's been Labour for so very long. Are, are you a fan of the Dehont system? Um, and what could it mean in Wales? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a fan of any system that means the government that's elected represents the people as they voted, right? right? And I think this is the this is the sort of big problem with these systems for conservative parties. So in Wales, if you look at the 2021 Senate elections, you know, 65% of people voted center left, right? So, and what the, while the Tories may gain a few seats, overall, what you're going to see is that governments start to ac accurately represent the voting public, which tends to sit center left in the UK. Um, I mean, look at the 2019 general, right? It was the peak of Tory popularity, they, I think, were on 42% and center-left parties were on 51%. So even in that moment that we're told, you know, Boris Johnson got a million votes, the most ever, they still would have lost that election if the actual seats that were taken up represented what people voted. And, you know, that's how the system's designed, right? It's there to maintain minority rule. Um, and I think what happens if Wales goes uh, to this system is that we start to see, the public starts to see, oh, wait, if the system represents us, accurate, our votes accurately, then we get the governments we actually want. And that's frightening to them. Well, it seems that pretty much every week we get a question about why is Keir Starmer not into proportional representation? Um, mm. And, uh, you know, we've discussed all, all, all the reasons for that. If you think you're about to win with first past the post, then you're uh, you're quite keen on that. I mean, this isn't an experiment. Obviously, the Welsh government is, a you know, is a large body. But I suppose in the in the um, in the big picture of the UK, this is something that is being is being tried out uh, in a specific place, doesn't need the approval of, you know, Conservative and Labour leadership. So if that works, and like you said, people do see how PR works, they do feel better represented, hopefully. Do you think that that can eventually have an effect on the national governments? Yeah, I mean, that's the hope, right? And I think it's important to mention as well that these types of systems are used in lots of democracies around the world. 
And so it's not as if it's even new with in the UK context. Um, I think when you see that we have a Labour government in Wales, right, and you see that a, a significant number, I think it's now a majority of uh, constituency Labour parties have endorsed PR, the largest unions have endorsed PR. It's just the, the national Labour leadership that isn't doing it. And I would guess that their thinking is, well, win an absolute majority this time, and then we're going to do some constitutional stuff before the next election. And I think the risk will be if they decide to wait till after the second election, because we know the Conservative Party is brilliant at reinventing themselves over and over, and that you can't really hope for a second election to make these types of changes that the country so desperately needs. Uh, now, both Marie and Jerry, uh, YouTube people will notice uh, on the phones, um, because there is breaking news sort of breaking news, that Rishi Sunak is doing a, a press conference, although much of the content seems to have been leaked in advance. Um, Marie, what's happening? What's he saying? I want to know, so first of all, I was on my phone because I've got crippling ADHD. Um, no, not just because Sunak <laughs> is doing <laughs> Okay, speech. okay. Um, but no, 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 it, it's, it's a slightly weird speech. He's basically said that he's going to ban things that have not happened yet. So he just he. No, I, I sort of respect it, you know. As a fellow attention seeker, I really enjoyed the fact that at short notice you were like, "And I shall make a speech." And now he's given his little speech, and it's stuff like, "Well, I will not ban long haul flights, and I will not stop tell people to stop eating red meat, and I will not give you seven bins." So okay. <laughs> sure, <laughs> that's nice. But those things had crucially not happened yet anyway, and were not going to happen anytime soon. Anyway, so I mean, Jerry, I, I don't know what you're seeing, but I, I, I'm finding from the tweets I've seen at least, it very puzzling. Yes, there's a lot of <laughs> what what we won't do uh, compared to kind of yeah. what, we, what we will do. But it seems to be, yeah, confirmation of a lot of the stuff that appears to have leaked uh, previously about kind of pushing back this ban on petrol and diesel cars, um, about kind of softening and watering down a lot of these net zero policies, which, of course, a lot were announced by Boris Johnson. Um, what's fascinating to me here is that Rishi Sunak's basically saying that we have defaulted, that's the word he's used, to being completely kind of opposite ends of the spectrum on net zero, that on the one hand, you've got climate deniers, and on the other hand, you've got people who are kind of zealots about net zero. And he says, we have to have a national conversation about it. I don't know that that is what's happened. I mean, there's plenty of polarisation in this country on politics. I'm not sure if it is on no, net if, zero. If you look at the polling, basically, most British people are kind of like soft green. Yeah. So, yeah, it's one of those weird areas, actually, I think, where there's quite broad agreement. Well, and it, again, just speaks to this problem of first past the post, right? The, what parties are doing now I respect is jockeying that. for those. <laughs> so, so I really let you and I've got a thing and I'm going to bring it back to my thing. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, because again, par the major parties are playing to the seats they believe are going to decide the next election, not what a majority of people think, believe or want for the future of the country, right? And this We see this again and again with political issues right now. Even if you look at immigration, majority of the country is not going, yeah, this is great. Let's put desperate people seeking refuge on a barge where they might get Legionnaire's disease. You know, that's just not actually. But the people in the seats are trying to target think that's a great idea. The weird thing is, uh, Jerry, that he sort of seems to be going, I'm not against, it would make more sense if he was just full-on denier but he seems to be going like we're gonna we're gonna these are all the things we're not gonna do that we said we we're gonna do but we still believe in net zero and the entire history of climate policy 
does suggest that, that, that a lot of these targets are very optimistic and that you can't just drop a load of stuff and go, but we're still going to hit our target. Yeah, look, and I think this is why I am sceptical over how effective this is going to be electorally, because this is all about votes, right? This is all because Rishi Sunak thinks that this can win him votes in a general election that we think is going to come next year, um, based on the fact that they won the Uxbridge by-election by 500 votes. I would I would yeah. argue <laughs> that you know, the, the wisdom of national policy making based on 500 votes in one small um, constituency, but we, uh, we digress. I... I think what is particularly interesting about this is that I don't see where the votes he's going to win with this come from. If you are already supportive of net zero, this is only going to piss people off. Mm. If you are sceptical or if you are a climate denier, this probably doesn't go far enough because they have not ruled out the, you know, the, the, the stretch aim of net zero by 2050. It's tweaking things that come before then. I think it's a very, very small cohort of people that this might win round. I don't really see where it's going. First this week, the right-wing politicians and columnists who sold us Brexit and Bojo seem to have collectively noticed the Tories have left the country in a terrible state. Guardian columnist Nesri Malik calls it the great noticing. Here's Isabel Oakeshott. Roads, railways, schools, GP services, hospitals, airports, housing, borders, prisons, and anything involving call centres. I think there's some personal pain behind that one. <laughs> All these things are broken in broken Britain. The speed and depth of national decline is breathtaking. Lord Frost, I fear for the future of Britain, a country in danger of just giving up. Charles Moore, Britain is in a state of distress more profound than our leaders are capable of addressing. Dominic Sambrook, if you think the country is going to the dogs, you're on a long list of doom mongers who have predicted the end is nigh. Alastair Heath, the Telegraph's Captain Apocalypse, talks of little else but decline and doom. Marie, do you remember when it was Remainers that were accused of talking Britain down and Conservatives were meant to be the, the, the great boosters? Oh, yes. And I, so I think it's actually come in waves. So the first, I think the first wave actually was the kind of from about like quite early on. So from 2011, maybe onwards, like 2011 to kind of 2015, you actually had the left of um, the Labour Party and the kind of like student left, etc. saying, oof, those austerity cuts are going, you know, that's too hard, too fast. Like That's not going to be good. And especially because a lot of the sectors, um, you know, where cuts were being made were already not in the greatest of health. And obviously they were kind of ignored. Then after Brexit, I think a, a lot of the kind of more centrist Remainers were like, oh, well, that's not going to be good. Like there's, you know, already there was an... I, I remember of... saying it wasn't going to be very good well, yes, on this no, very podcast. <gasps> you shocking Week after me. week on after week podcast, on this Dorian. podcast. <gasps> um, you know, and got ignored. And, you know, and, and now, so again, it feels like this sort of wave that's taken British politics from left to right gradually of like finally the, the right is uh, realising it. So I, the one thing I'll say is that I know we're calling it the great noticing, but I really enjoy on Twitter uh, the phrase that has become quite popular, which is hot dog Tories. Um, after that really famous screen grab that's become a meme of a man dressed as a hot dog going, we're all trying to find the guy who did this. Um, and that's kind of that. All those people, it's like, oh, well, everything's broken. So like, you, are, you, sir, are dressed as a hot dog. Like, you, you have a hot dog on your head and yet you're asking who did this. Um, the Spectator ran with the cover line, broken Britain, what went wrong? And the actual phrase broken Britain has been used a lot. David Cameron, of course, referred to Broken Britain in opposition and promised to fix it during the 2010 election campaign. Did he mean something different by it? Was it all sort of, I don't know, glue-sniffing hoodies back then rather than 
crumbling schools. Oh, so I looked into it and actually I, I'm, I'm going to read up uh, a bit of what he said in his big broken Britain speech because I found it. So he blamed irresponsibility, selfishness, behaving as if your choices have no consequences, children without fathers, schools without discipline, reward without effort, crime without punishment, rights without responsibilities. Ooh. I know, I know, which I mean, I would argue. And, and then actually, if you looked at the detail, he was basically mad about teen pregnancy, which actually, you know, n- new labour really cut massively, crime rates, and my favourite one, moral collapse. <laughs> which, please do not ask me any further questions that as cov- to what he meant. That by just moral covers collapse. everything. So it wasn't, it was yeah. moral collapse, not, not school collapse. Yeah. So, so again, clearly he believed that. Britain was broken, but yeah, please don't ask me to elaborate too much on exactly what he meant by that. Now it just seems to apply to literally everything. Jerry, do you, these are not, oh, this of course, Rishi Sunak is not saying this. This is is more the commentariat. Do you sense that they've given up and are preparing for opposition? And if you keep saying that everything's broken, then as soon as Labour take over, all these problems become theirs. And then presumably they hope that people forget who broke it and then they blame uh, Keir Starmer. Potentially. I mean, in Westminster at the moment, I must say, you know, MPs seem to have the the vibe that they've given up. It's really mm. it's really difficult, actually. And maybe this is just my contacts don't like me anymore. But actually, it's really <laughs> it's really difficult to get Tory MPs to engage in much at the moment because it's like they're like, oh, well, why would I bother? I don't care. If MPs feel like that, that's also what people in the commentariat are getting at their lunches and drinks and things like that, right? So they are in the in a way reflecting where the party is at. I think it is a problem for Labour because they are going to come in if they win the next general election to essentially a load of shit that they are going to have to clear up. There's going to be no money, schools are crumbling. NHS is on its knees and there there is going to be a lot of clean-up to do. So, yeah, look, I imagine the Tories will try and pin it on them, whether that's the party or or commentators. But I think it, it the, the you know, the thing of Labour left us in this mess and we're still cleaning it up, that excuse that we hear over and over again, I just don't think is flying with people anymore. And I don't just mean MPs or voters or anything. I just don't think, I think people see that they're tired and that mm. they can't pick it up. Someone described it to me the other day as... Um, and I don't, I don't mean to diminish this as someone who has had depression, but like the government has depression, right? It's not that they don't want to do anything. It's that they just can't bring themselves to. It's that they can't bring themselves to get out of bed and, you know, wash their face and wash their hair. They can't bring themselves to build HS2. They can't bring themselves to do planning reform. They can't bring themselves to do anything. There's a the kind of great malaise over the government, I think. Well, most of the people that I quoted, uh, not Dominic Sandbrook, most of the people I quoted, uh, you, you would fairly say were, were pretty hard right. And I noticed there was something about Isabel Oakeshott going, the speed and depth of national decline is breathtaking. So it's almost like, oh my God, it's just happened. Is there some kind of just anti-Sunakism here that rather than condemning the last 13 years, they're specifically unhappy with this guy? I think there's some of that. I think there's some of that. You know, there is still leftover anger, I think, from how Boris Johnson was got rid of in some parts of of the right. People are still angry about that. Like, we can dismiss groups like um, the the CDO, you know, the Campbell Bannerman, um, Lord Crudders outfit that Pretty Patel's involved in. We can dismiss them as kind of the right of the party that no one's listening to. But there are two things to say on that. First of all, a lot of party members do agree with them. Mm-hmm. So they have that to kind of their bow. But also, 
again, if Labour win the next general election, there's going to be a massive realignment and fight over what the Conservative Party actually stands for. So I think what we're also seeing some of these uh, commentators and outriders doing is trying to set the stage for, yes, a party in opposition, but not necessarily because they're opposing Labour, but for a fight for what the party is. Uh, Kyle, is the big problem that because we've had, I don't know, how many prime ministers is it? Five? 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 And they've tried so many different varieties of Toryism. You know, there's a big contrast between uh, Boris Johnson and David Cameron and uh, Liz Truss. And they've all sort of failed in, in different ways. And so it's not as if you can go, well, oh, well, we tried... We tried that and that didn't work, but here's this cool new version of the Tory party and we're going to try something else. Like, do you get the feeling that even these people on the outside who are not legislators um, and they can just sort of complain and criticise, do they have any great ideas in their bags? I mean, I don't know what Isabel Oakeshott's plan for fixing call centres is. Like, do, do, does any, are, there any, are there any solutions or is it just like, oh God? I think when thinking about conservative parties, Republicans are quite similar. Their baseline is that we are meant to rule. We are meant to have the power, right? So the only lens through which they tend to think about what they're doing is how they either retain it or get it again. And I think it's pretty clear that they're not going to get it again. And I think this recent resurgence of of Tories criticizing Tories makes that crystal, and, you know, you'd like to think that the public would remember who caused the problems and how long it will take to clean up the mess. But you only have to look at the United States and, you know, less than three years into Joe Biden's administration. And when you ask the public who's to blame for everything, they're already blaming Joe Biden. And the polls today have Biden and Trump even. Um, so, so for me, I think about this more in the context of what are they attempting to do? And so they're attempting to shift the focus on the failure of the last guy to raise the injustice of the removal of the hero in Boris Johnson. And he is a Teflon politician. I mean, he is going nowhere and he will be back, in my view. And if you look at Oakenshot and others in this space, I see them more aligning with that wing of the reinvention. So there's going to be the, a massive, as, as was just said, a, a realignment. But I think the objective now is jockeying for who's going to come out on top of that um, and is best situated to attack labor and blame them for everything. And I don't think Labour are doing a good enough job of really priming the public for how big of a mess there is to clean up. It seems to me, and this is possibly because I've just been uh, preparing to do a podcast on on John Maynard Keynes, but it, it seems as if you do have to spend quite a lot of money and the Tories seem really incapable of doing that. I mean, unless there's a pandemic. Um, and then Rachel Reeves doesn't really want to do that. And so it, it seems as if you can look at all these things that are broken and there doesn't seem to me to be, I don't think the public are going to buy that there's this one cool trick that will fix things that does not involve spending a lot of money. Well, yeah, and especially, you know, so, so that, that's the sort of neoliberal capitalist consensus, right? You see um, Keir Starmer giving speeches about how we're going to be the, you know, going to attract business and be the best place in the world for business. And it's always seen through the lens that if the government supports the free market, the free market will support the people. And when you see how other democracies have worked, you know, having the opportunity to spend time in Japan, you see that it isn't the only way to do things. You know, Japan is kind of like uh, Bernie Sanders style capitalism. Everything about the private market is fo focused on delivering societal aims. 
Like, how will this be good for society? But that isn't even in the frame or realm of possibility for any of the mainstream parties in the UK. They're still accepting that baseline and not acknowledging the fundamental problems of where we are. So, you know, will Labour be successful? Not if they maintain, as you say, I mean, Rachel Reeves, the other thing I find just so interesting is these opposition parties just ruling out stuff before they're in power. Oh, we're not going to touch that. We're not going to touch this. We're gonna touch Why would you do that? You're walking yourself into a situation where you can't recover from it, right? You can't actually then level with the public and go, we need to do this if we want that. I think something I found really useful uh, to come back to your earlier point, Dorian, is this, I think it was actually John Ellich who coined it, uh, the reform ferry. So if you look, and I think both Labour and the Tories at the moment have been doing it a lot of, so, you know, if you want to fix a problem, oh no, we don't need any extra money. We don't even need a new, you know, send reforms. Thanks to reforms, we will fix everything. And he's like, and yet again, the reform ferry will just come in and solve everything. Um, and I think yeah, if you read about any kind of policy proposal from either party, and you, you can sort of in your head add in a sentence that says, and the reform ferry will arrive and sort it all, then you know that not much is going to happen. Yeah. And the reform ferry's cousin is the efficiency ferry. (laughs) So look, I've noticed that publications uh, from The Telegraph and uh, uh, to to Unheard to The New Statesman are very pessimistic. I subscribe to The New Statesman. And and, and even then, one gets it each month and everything is broken, dying, doomed, failed. Everything was like a kind of delusion, you know, the the liberal delusion, the neoliberal delusion, the whatever, the whatever. Everything is kind of awful. Now, I noticed when, when writing about the 1970s that you get this impression that everybody was like tearing their hair out. And actually, you know, polls show that at the time, a lot of normal people, they were worried about, you know, this and that and the economy, but they were kind of sort of getting on with their lives and you get quite a distorted view from the commentariat. So you're going back through like what what prominent intellectuals and stuff were saying and it seemed worse than it was. Do you think that this kind of apocalypticism is, is more a disease of the commentariat than the public? The short answer, I think, to that is no, because I think if like, look, I don't have the numbers to hand, but I think if you look at polling now, people do feel pretty grim about their lives. And I think that is based on the fact that it's like basic services they can't get to, right? If you can't see your GP, if a minor crime happens in your area and you don't think the police are going to come out to it, if, you know, you can't afford a new car after 10 years, if you're stuck in rental accommodation that's badly regulated and your landlord's an asshole and you can never afford to get on the housing ladder, you can't afford to have a truck. Like, these are things that are actually impacting people's lives. And, you know, going back to the David Cameron speech that Marie read a bit out from, those were issues that, you know, depending on your political persuasion, you might think are important to society and you want to fix, but they wouldn't touch lots of people's lives. Like, actually, most people would never encounter teenage pregnancy. Most people would never actually encounter knife crime or something like that. Moral collapse. Um, But actually, the problems that we're seeing in society at the moment everyone is feeling. And actually, my litmus test for this is always my mum, who is um, not super, super politically engaged. And, you know, it, and if you, I think it basically the, the, the gauge here is if you ask people, do you feel better off? Mm-hmm. And increasingly, the answer is no. Well, uh, we'll wrap up with uh, some cheering thoughts coming from the two major parties. It's been reported, I'm not sure if it's been confirmed, that Labour's conference slogan will be, give Britain its future back which seems like they've got this, they've got the message here. But then the Tories, I think this is going to, I think this is on the cover of their conference brochure, is long-term decisions for a brighter future. Marie. (laughs) 
<laughs> Which, what do you think of these two slogans? Because I saw people on Twitter going, give Britain its future back is too long. It's five words when it should be three. But then you come to long-term decisions rewrite the future. <laughs> and that was just much sexier, isn't it? Yeah, just <laughs> come right, fight against do you that. Think, I mean, obviously, but they're both looking at the future. Uh, do either of these work? Um, I would say that the Labour one is better than the Conservative <laughs> one, which I do not necessarily mean as a compliment. Right. Um, no, I, give, I, it's a weird one, actually, because I've, I've been trying to think about it. But yeah, give Britain its future back feels a bit wrong, but I can't quite put my finger on why. I, I don't know. There's something back to the future about it. I, 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 yeah, I think I like the sentiment, but I think it perhaps could have been phrased a bit. It also bit sounds quite, th- I think it's quite threatening. Yeah. Mm. Because who are you telling? It's like asking someone to give give your phone back. Mm. Yeah, no, exactly. Like it's it's quite, yeah, or else. It's quite <laughs> you know? aggressive. <laughs> um, and yeah, the Tory one, I feel like there's no need to talk about it. I think, you know, like I think several people, I genuinely laughed out loud when I first saw it. And that, that's all I have to say. <laughs> Okay, now let's have a question from one of our Patreon backers in But Your Emails. If you back us on Patreon, we could be answering your question next time. Melissa Brantsberg says, We're a family with young kids who have just been Section 21'd, evicted without fault. So this is a bit personal. It seems like such a huge own goal for the Tories to have iced the renters' rights bill. Why have they done it? And now with rent sky high, we've had to give up on London. Does Labour understand just how very deep this crisis is? Renters. It's us. <laughs> it's me and, too. Yeah. Isn't it like a combination? It's a combination of things, right? I think the Tories, as we've talked about, as um, I think Jerry was saying, Rishi is just not really doing anything anyway. Um, so I think that, that that's part of a more general, kind of like broader It's picture. not personal. It's just he doesn't want to do anything. Yeah, no, yeah. exactly. Which again, I mean, I've been there before, relatable. Um, but yes, I think it's partly that. On the Labour front, I think um, they're, as we've talked about already as well, they're kind of trying not to make any major massive promises at the moment. And I think fixing renting entirely uh, would be a big, a big ask. And I think the third thing, which is not really the answer I want to give as someone who really hates renting because of how bad it's got, is that also it's not it's not clear there's an easy, quick fix. I remember asking on Twitter at some point, I said, you know, um, people who know about this stuff, are there things, let's imagine we do have a government who really wants to fix this problem. Is there something they can do that's, you know, broadly realistic and that would fix the renting crisis in big cities quite quickly? So it turns out there's not. Um, so that was a bummer. Um, but, you know, I think that's partly the problem as well. Of, you know, and, and sure, and I think, you know, you can do stuff around Section 21. You can start finally fucking building more houses. You, you can give renters a bit more rights, etc. But ultimately, that's either tinkering around the edges or that stuff that's going to take years to kind of make the market change meaningfully. So which is not to say we shouldn't be doing it. But I think, you know, especially at the moment, parties are kind of desperate for quick fixes for stuff or stuff that will show quite quickly. And that's not going to be one of them. Well, it seems that, I mean, like Marie says, lots of long-term issues you know, to do with, like, housing supply, and there aren't these quick fixes. But there was quite a lot of enthusiasm for this this, this renter's rights bill, that there were just certain mm. things to stop some, you know, bad behaviour from landlords. And it's in that category of Tory policies that are actually quite a good idea, but they just didn't bother doing them. Jerry, is that something that Labour could just, you know, pick up and rejig? and do quite easily and it wouldn't solve the issue but it would certainly say we're on renter's side you know very early on because a lot of the work has already sort of been done on it yeah look um i'm 
uh, because I really know how to have fun on a weekend. I spent a uh, Friday evening looking through Labour's National, National Policy Forum final report. Uh, it's 160 <laughs> odd pages. Is it funny? Does it have jokes? Um, no jokes, sorry. <laughs> no. Um, you bring someone in to shush it up? No pictures either. Very disappointing. Uh-huh. There's a pretty sizable section on, on renting in there and it, it has the kind of stuff that you would expect, you know, long tenancies, blah, blah, blah. Um, but... What I find fascinating about this for Labour is actually what happened in the reshuffle very recently, putting Angela Rayner in um, the levelling up job, which covers housing, I think is a real indication of how seriously they're going to try and take housing and make that a big issue at this election. I mean, she is obviously a good performer, good media performer and takes the fight to people. I think putting her in that key policy area, and I, I would say this, wouldn't I, because I wrote a story about it, but I think shows that they're going to really hammer home things on planning reform, on housing, and obviously eventually that should help renters. But as Marie says, it's not short term in any way, shape or form. So I wouldn't expect anything immediate. I think this the last piece about it is, you know, there's only so much parliamentary time. And when you look at what they've what the government has prioritized, it is 12 months of culture war issues, right? It's banning protest, it's uh, like that's the, the first one that comes to top of mind it's immigration it's it's all of these things that are not going to help this listener's issue right or solve most people's problems it's wedge issues ahead of a general and that's that's what they've prioritized there was an amazing uh interview with uh mog on uh the world at one where they were talking about the climate you know the net zero u-turn and he just basically said it was about the election and it's like, oh. you're not meant to say that. You're meant to say it's for the good of the country. <laughs> and he was just like, he was just going, yeah, yeah, that's going to really help with votes. Uh, but wasn't it like a, a lobby journalist uh, tweeted saying, actually, you know, the thing about the net zero fight is that it's actually fundamentally about Rishi versus Boris. And it's like, is it? Like, you're a political journalist. Is it really not about fucking, you know, the state of the country or the planet? Or I, I don't know, that really infuriated me. But, I do, yeah. Well, it's like the, um, uh, you know, that New York cartoon that keeps getting re... Um, recaptioned where it's just like you know like an old man and a child huddling Mm. around a post-apocalyptic fire and you can just imagine someone going it was really about Rishi versus Boris Next up, the online safety bill is in its final parliamentary stages after five years and eight ministers. Big tech companies have railed against provisions in the bill that would force them to allow encrypted messages to be monitored for harmful content. WhatsApp and Signal have both threatened to quit the UK if these provisions weren't removed from the bill. Carl, there's a lot going on in this bill. Could you sum up sort of the main points in it and, and what has dropped out of it since it was first introduced many moons ago? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, this is a this is five years in the making, um, and the last five years of my life <laughs> primarily focused on this. <laughs> Can bill you please sum up the last five years of your life very <laughs> quickly? Life. Yeah, it's uh, spoiler alert. It wasn't great. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think originally what we had in the the online safety bill was truly world leading. Um, I mean, it, it peaked after pre legislative scrutiny, where you saw a, a coalescing from the free speech wing of the Conservative Party all the way through to the left, um, agreeing around what this bill should look like and jointly making recommendations. But as has been the case with so much legislation, it fell victim to the Tory infighting and it became much more about politics than policy. 
So, you know, I think it's important to say that for kids, the internet will likely get marginally better in some ways and worse in others in terms of access, because there's a lot of provisions that mean that they need to now be in kind of like a kid internet. Um, but keeping that fight together, I mean, huge, huge congratulations go to Baroness um, Kidrone, who, I mean, is just championed this from a kid's perspective. But from a, an adult perspective, you're not going to see a safer internet. You're not going to feel a, a huge change to your experience. Um, and that has primarily to do with what they've done and gutted with what we what became known as legal but harmful content. So racist, hate speech, COVID disinformation, uh, things that you can legally say, but at scale are likely to cause societal harm. Um, that's been replaced with this idea of filters that basically says you should you can flip a switch if you want to see less racism. Now, there's like several problems with that, right? Like one is just because you flip a switch doesn't mean it's not there anymore. It's still circulating in the system and the company's profiting from it and racist going to be racist. You know, the, the, the second is that the, the approach from civil society was, okay, if you're going to do that, then at least have them default switched on. But of course, the government didn't even concede that point. So you have to go in and turn it on, which nobody's going to do. There's no individual complaints mechanisms. The transparency reporting is now not required, but can just be requested by the regulator. Risk assessments have been watered down. Um, you know, nothing really addressing the power imbalances from those users that cause the most harm to everyday users. There are media exemptions. There are exceptions for speech of democratic importance. And all of these things, what they do is they make it impossible for the platforms to operate as a systems-based approach to regulation, right? If it's like the rules apply, except in this case, this case, and this case, and all of those exceptions are actually for those entities that are the most likely to cause harm at scale, like, I don't know that we'll see anything safer for everyday users. And instead, we'll see a two-tiered internet where those most powerful users have the most influence and reach um, beyond what they already have. And I think the last piece on encryption is so, so important. And the government tried to sell a fudge where they basically said, oh, well, it's not technically feasible to scan encryption messages right now. So it, we won't do it until it becomes technically feasible. This doesn't mean that they're not going to do it in the future. And we learned that today, when Thursday, when the government, um, the Home Office announced that a global campaign to keep Meta from encrypting other messaging on, on Messenger and, and Instagram. So, I mean, they're as transparent as can be, right? If you look at their track record on legislation, what makes anyone think this bill is suddenly going to be good legislation? Just to clarify what your what your take is on in the on the encryption, because obviously you know you can you can send a lot of very uh, dodgy and decriminal stuff through through these messages. On the other hand, also most people just use it for for the privacy. I've you know interviewed protesters who use Signal because they basically need to. That's the only way they can organise sort of protests. So what's your what's your take? Would you know on on the encryption? Yeah, I think the government has presented a false dichotomy that we can either keep kids safe or we can have privacy. And I think it's really unfair to the public to be presented that binary choice because it isn't a binary choice. We know that you can do, uh, you can scan patterns and behaviors in other ways to determine 
behavior of of uh, CSEA content, for example, behind encryption. But you know, you you made a good point in talking about protesters. What about journalists who work with sources? What about governments that run on WhatsApp? You know, for example, like not everything needs to be public. And and the last thing I'll say about the binary on CSEA is that we know a majority of CSEA content, uh, child sexual sexual exploitation content, is collected from publicly available Facebook posts and Instagram posts, not private messaging. So you take away privacy, all you do is make it impossible to have a conversation without the government or a giant corporation listening to you. And if you create a a hole in one place, it exists everywhere. The internet is global. Encryption is global. And I just, I hate the idea that we become the leader in the worst possible thing in the context of private messaging online. Jerry, one of the biggest supporters of this bill is the father of Molly Russell, um, who, who said that in 2017, Instagram killed his daughter with content that encouraged suicide. Now, if you search suicide on Instagram now, there's, uh, you know, there's a lot more sort of support advice. There's a lot less of this kind of um, uh, content promoting self-harm and so on. Has that, does, I mean, I don't know if I'm being too generous here, has the threat of the legislation been somewhat effective in getting platforms to uh, crack down on certain kinds of content, with one big exception that we will come to next. I think, I think to some extent, I think. Look, I I would say that I grew up on the internet in the time when it was a complete wild west. I mean, you know, in, encouraging um, eating disorders in these like uh, pro Anna communities. I remember finding myself in those when I was what 11, 12? That's a really inappropriate thing to have been on the internet at that time. And I do think in certain ways that has improved, you know, with the examples that you're kind of citing there. Um, And I mean, I think that maybe in a way, just the fact this conversation has been had has helped because actually what's more powerful than legislation sometimes? Bad PR. You know, did Instagram want to have their name slapped over every news story that was reporting on Molly Russell's death and uh, and her father has been an absolutely tireless campaigner. No, of course they don't. So they, they have done something. But of course, that only applies if you kind of want to be a mainstream platform, right? There are a lot of platforms that that wouldn't apply to. So I think it has to an extent. Right, I think yeah. it's not gone maybe as far as it as it could have done. But I think things must... I, I don't know. Look, I'm not a young person on the internet anymore. I'm a 31-year-old on the internet, which I imagine is a very, very different experience. But I just know from my experience as a teenager on the internet, it was awful then. I would hope it's a bit better now. Well, to give Marie a break from Muskwatch, Elon Musk seems to have consciously set out to make Twitter a safe space for harassment. He has made it considerably uh, worse than it was and almost invite and, and literally invited back uh, anti-Semites and, and, and Nazis um, with whom he has some <laughs> kinship. Uh, is, is, is he an outlier? Like, I mean, obviously it's a big very prominent platform, but but is the direction that he's gone in, which seems antithetical to all of this, can we can we discern anything from that other than that he is a very like strange man? 
I think it's really hard with Twitter. It makes me really sad, right? I spent a lot of time on Twitter and as a, I'm not saying that I'm one of the most targeted people like this, but, you know, I have noticed since Elon Musk took over as a female journalist that spends her time on TV and things like that, the targeting and the hate and things like that is so much worse than it's been for many, many years. So I think that's that's on the one hand that I would just back up that it has got worse and I know I'm not kind of at the forefront of that but if I've noticed it that means people that actually get targeted have and I think really this just plays into the fact that he's a he's he's a bit out there right like that's the polite way of saying it but he he doesn't he's a wild care. card he's a wild card that's the way my like grandparents would describe right he's a, he's a bit of a madcap guy um but I think really, that was always going to happen when, you know, a Playboy billionaire takes over something like that. And I think it's just a massive shame. But, you know, we're seeing it, and I know we're going to come on to talk to about Russell Brand, but the kind of conspiracy theorists, the kind of really extreme on the left and right people who are coming back onto Twitter have been allowed to do so, essentially because Elon believes in free speech above all else. And that's not always a good thing. Just come back to you, Kyle. When, you know, when, when you look at the landscape... Um, of how the tech companies are behaving, and we often talk about big tech like a like a monolith. Do you think that do you think that 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 is useful or misleading, and that actually you have to look at these individual companies and see that they've all got they're all reacting in different ways, and they've all got a suite of different policies. I mean, they are largely the same, and I think it's helpful to keep them in the same frame. Um, with the exception of Apple, because Apple's business model is different, right? Apple sells you hardware and now a few services. But the other, if you're a company where your business is built on collecting data to sell ads, you're pretty much the same. And I think that that's the fundamental problem with these companies is, you know, you're looking at a situation where, you know, they could reduce their revenues by maybe 10% and we could all have a much safer internet. But their primary objective as private businesses is to maximize uh, income, right? Maximize profit. And so they're not going to take action unless they have to. Um, I think the other thing just to mention about Musk, um, to give Marie a second break from Musk, <laughs> Musk Patrol, <laughs> is, you know, that this is a the wealthiest straight white man in the world on the internet. You know, you can, it's very easy to be a free speech absolutist when you're not normally the target of vitriolic abuse as a member of a marginalized group, right? So it's it's very easy to say, oh, well, if everybody could just say everything, that's great. You know, that's not true for LGBTQ people, people of color, um, and any marginalized group. So I just think it's women, you know, I, I just think it's, it's, again, it's somebody without any real world experience as a user in this world, dictating to us the rules in a way that even governments can't really rein in. To leave that guy aside for one minute or, or, or month or, or year, how does big tech feel about this bill now? Because obviously there, there, there's, there's been some, there's been lobbying, there's been irritation with certain things. At the same time, both Sunak and Starmer, they want to court big tech and it's part of their obsession with the future and, and won't AI be wonderful and so on and so forth. You know, has has big tech been, been sort of alienated, riled up? by this bill? Or are they just very hard-headed about it and go, well, we're annoyed about that, but we still want to invest in Britain and, and make money by selling them AI? Yeah, I mean, if, 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 I, if I were big tech, I would be largely unaffected. I would be largely ambivalent about this bill for a few okay. reasons. Yeah. Right. One, the DSA 
in Europe is 700 million users in their most profitable market. They're way more concerned there. You know, the UK is now a very small market. Um, and two, the underlying message of this government is we're open for business, invest here, invest here, right? So they're going to maintain some level of company friendliness. You don't see, you know, Google shifting their plans to open their European headquarters in London. Facebook's second, second largest staff office is in London. Um, so I, I don't think they're, they're that affected. And, and we know from experience they had total access to ministers during the process of the bill. So sort of on that note here, that's going to paint me in a great light. But um, but as it happens, some of my best friends are actually big tech lobbyists. But I think, you know, and I've had a lot of chats uh, with uh, with them about that stuff over the past kind of months and years. And the one thing I wanted to add is that I think there is an immense amount of frustration from the tech side over the fact that, and that's maybe another discussion for another time, but over the fact that MPs, by and large, do not know what they're talking about. They do not understand at all what they're trying to legislate. They do not understand what the solutions they have, quote unquote, you know, what they would do. They a lot of them, a lot of them either have no interest at all in understanding, or the ones who sort of do, then apparently you realize quite quickly that their knowledge is actually incredibly surface level and they just do not know what they're talking about. Which I, I do think is kind of a worry if you're you know, by definition, legislating on services that basically everyone uses now and having, you know, members of parliament not really, you know, basically having the levels of understanding of like your nan. Um, is an ideal. Because Nadine Doris was a big champion of, 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 of this bill in its more sort of full-blooded form. I don't know whether she was a, an expert on the issues. Um, but one of the opponents was Kemi Badenoch from the Free Speech Wing, uh, who described the bill as legislating for hurt feelings. Do you think, could you see the Tories in opposition leaning into direction where they end up opposing their own bill and going very hard into becoming almost muskian? in their obsession with knockabout free speech. Oh, absolutely. And, but I, oh, so I think in, in, in a weird, twisted way, I'm not entirely against Kemi's point where I think she has. I am a bit of an internet libertarian and I think I, I definitely would not go as far as her, but I do think that actually trying to legislate against um, harmful but legal content uh, is a bit of a slippery slope. But anyway, but yeah, no, I think on the political point, absolutely. I think uh, the cons- like whoever, basically, I think we've had, as discussed earlier, we've had so many conservative prime ministers, whoever wins the leadership contest will definitely really hate at least one of those PMs. <laughs> so, like, so they will at some point yeah. be like, oh God, yeah, and that clown, um, and you know, but any permutation of anything like that will happen because we've just had so many PMs. Yeah, any new Tory leader is going to end up opposing some Tory policies in a sort of nothing to do with me, mate. Yeah, kind no, of it's going to be really funny. I think it'd be great to see which Tory MPs go and work for the tech companies afterward as well. It'll be a good mm-hmm. indicator. Uh, surely, Rishi, that is his spiritual home, isn't it? Oh God. <laughs> Now, there's always an after-show conversation in the special edition for Patreon supporters. You can follow the link in the show notes to back us and get that every week. But this week, we've decided to open up the extra bit to everyone. As you probably know, over the weekend, a joint investigation by The Times and Channel 4's dispatches exposed multiple allegations of sexual abuse against Russell Brand. Since then, his YouTube channel has been demonetized, his tour dates cancelled, and future book publications put on hold. The Dispatches documentary is called In Plain Sight. It juxtaposes allegations with stand-up radio and TV appearances by Brand in the noughties in which misogyny was mainstream entertainment and he was not the only culprit. This has prompted many discussions about normalisation and complicity. How did popular culture get so cruel? Marie, 
what do you remember about that time? And how do your memories tally with this kind of like the low lights reel presented there? It's, um, it is a weird one. So I was born in 91 uh, and obviously I grew up in France. Um, so, so my kind of formative years were very late 90s, kind of early 2000s. And I do remember, so I was absolutely, like I was a teenage edgelord, which was really weird. So I made the worst possible jokes you could. And I think like that was the fun thing at the time because you just had to be, and especially I think as a girl, if you, wanted, uh, if you wanted to be accepted by the boys, you had to show that you could take it and you could be even more offensive than them. Uh, which obviously, really? weird. it's weird to look back on that and be like, oh. Um, but no, but, but, but even, you know, so I, um, as it happens, because I think actually, so that the Russell Brand stuff has triggered a wider discussion, I think, online, and even that's kind of reached French Twitter. And someone posted, so that was just a clip from a TV show I used to watch, again, in it, from quite a young age, probably even as a tween. That's just a chat show that was in the on in the evening. where So this singer, Lara Fabian, uh, went on, and obviously, obviously, the other two people, the presenter and the comedian, were men. Aside from her, and they were like, oh, you've lost a lot of weight because you used to be really fat, didn't you? And like, look at you, you're not really fat anymore. And then she's like, oh, haha, like clearly really uncomfortable. And then they keep like, it, it just gets worse and worse. So like the presenter goes, no, at least you've not lost your tits. And I think that's really important because actually a lot of fat women who lose weight, they don't have tits anymore. And isn't that a shame? And she just has to play along. And it's a really long clip. And I watched that going, oh, my God, like, that's what I was watching every night when I was like 10, 11. Um, and yeah. Yeah. Ah. Uh, Jerry, after dispatches, uh, lots of clips appeared on Twitter of instances of rape jokes and harassment on air, some involving a uh, brand uh, and some not, with everybody chortling away. Um, other things that have been mentioned, uh, you know, Little Britain, the men's magazines when they evolved out of the Don't We Like With Nell and I and the Italian job into just like full on uh, misogyny. Um, the tabloids eagerly waiting for Charlotte Church and, and Emma Watson to turn 18 and so on. There, there, there's a lot of this. I think we're used to looking back at the grubby 70s in horror with racist jokes and Jimmy Savile and uh, and all of that. Is it shocking to you to feel like that about such a recent period? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the first thing I must do, because my colleagues would never forgive me, it was a The Times, The Sunday Times and Dispatches Investigation. They are separate teams, and I know it's very confusing for people outside of, the, outside of sure, things. And in but... fact, uh, Ross McDermott, one of the, the, the key figures, was uh, as a former guest on this yeah, podcast. Yeah, quite. Um, but, but look, I, I, I'm um, same age as Marie and uh, had a very similar experience in this country, and that is just the era that it was. But I think you're right that it's quite shocking to think about it as such a recent period. Like, it's only very recently that I haven't been able to enter the young journalist category in awards. So, you know, it wasn't really that long ago. Um, not that I'm bitter about that at all, <laughs> obviously. Um, but I think you're right that it, I don't, I, I agree with you, Marie, that you kind of, it was performative in mm. lots of ways and you 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 played up to it. And, you know, I remember happily, obviously, not actually happily, but almost happily being the butt of the joke of like a get back in the kitchen joke and things like that. And look, that's not extreme misogyny, I know, but that is exactly the kind of thing that would happen as a teenager. And I think the, there's, there's so many things that you look at that period now and just realise how unhealthy it was, whether it's thinking that, you know, Jessica Simpson at a size 12, how we all looked at her photo and went, oh my God, look how fat she is. Mm. Or how, you know, we looked at Paris Hilton, obviously in the grips of some horrible eating disorder when she needed help and going, oh, that's exactly what I want to look like. And that's, you know, only on a, on a weight perspective. I think it is shocking that it's so recent, but I think the other thing about it 
is that it's one of the first kind of times when teenagers were given such constant access to photographs of celebrities Mm. to be able to take part in those debates. It kind of goes back to the thing we were saying about the internet when you don't have a fully formed brain and you don't as a teenager. Mm. You know, I was a horrible little cow when I was 14. (laughs) I just simply was because I was a 14-year-old girl and quite often you are. And I think that a lot of it kind of comes from that um, and the fact that it just wasn't constrained in any way, shape or form. Carl, you were in the the US at at that time and I was reminded watching this, actually the Amy Winehouse documentary with that feeling of seeing these clips of talk show hosts laughing at the struggles of of an obviously a really tormented addict. Same with Lindsay Lohan, Britney Spears, Paris Hilton and so on. now I remember in the '90s there was a there was a lot of crassness. There was behind the scenes, particularly a lot of misogyny. But what I don't remember is this edge of sadism to celebrity culture. What do you think happened in in, in the noughties? Yeah, so I mean, I think it's really important to remember that there were so so many fewer media channels at the time, right? So everything was a bit more focused, and I would argue there were probably fewer celebrities, fewer A-listers, so there was a lot more attention on them. But the really big change was in 2003 when Jessica Simpson and Nick Lakey starred in the first celebrity reality show. And I think it was such an important moment because all of a sudden we had this access to celebrities and with it in in at least in my experience and in like um colloquial conversation was the idea that well they're putting themselves out there so what they have they deserve what they get right and the the chicken of the sea comment which anyone of of teenage to early 20 years went will remember this moment that fundamentally changed i think how we how we treat these celebrities um, where she asked, so she, yeah, so she had a can of tuna in the U S there's a brand called chicken of the sea. And she said to her husband is wait, I thought it was tuna, but it says it's chicken of the sea. Is it chickens that live by the sea? And it became like, you talk about the talk show thing. I remember seeing the talk show clips over and over and over. I remember her being on a show and them saying, holding it up going, is this tuna or a chicken? You know, and and that scale of sort of acceptable um, attack that's deeply grounded in misogyny just became so normalized. And there were so few targets and so few voices to counteract it. Right. And at that time, major uh, mainstream media was focused on appealing to the largest possible audience and being cruel was something that worked. You know, we don't see that dispersed media environment now where people go, I don't want to tune into that. I'm moving over here. Well, it's interesting that Russell Brand was on Big Brother's Big Mouth and Big Brother was something that produced celebrities, but sometimes it seemed that there was only cruelty. Someone like Jade Goody, where it just seemed only like, look at this awfulness and she behaved badly and then she was treated badly and there was this like cycle of bullying. I suppose because, you know, Russell Brand was a stand-up, um, Marie, as a as a teenage edgelord, it struck me that having been in sort of, you know, fan of comedy audiences and only once thought, ah, this has gone too far, this guy is mm. losing, and you could feel him losing the room. Is the problem with comedy that, particularly then maybe, that taboo breaking and outrage are funny because you're not meant to say that, but it's based on the good faith assumption that they don't really mean it. And so sort of 
people don't just to think, are you abusing women in private? They just assume like, well, no, of course you're not. You're just saying this thing because it's outrageous. Mm. I So I would argue that popular culture has shifted a bit on that. Well, I think ironic misogyny, sexism, racism, etc. was very much a thing. And again, in, you know, and I remember at the time as well making that being mixed race and I'd make lots of racist jokes. So I was like, haha, but that's kind of the joke because I'm mixed race and a woman. So I didn't believe it. So I think that it was a massive thing, the kind of irony layer to everything that was that permeated as well I think the early-ish internet but and I'm not sure actually that's yeah probably another discussion for another time but I do wonder when that shift happened because I do think it has actually I I don't think you could get away with that anymore or certainly if if you were to do kind of ironic sexism let's say in stand-up then your fans would be sexists. Like, you know, they, they would not be people going, oh, I shouldn't laugh, but, you know, oh, I'm progressive, but. Like, I, I think something that we've become more first degree uh, recently on that sort of stuff, but I couldn't exactly tell you when it well, happened. Zoe Williams wrote a piece about this in The Guardian, and, and at the end she was, the illusion of progress has masked an accelerating descent into misogyny. If we look at the noughties and think times have changed for the better, we are just spinning ourselves the same false comfort. Now, I'm not sure whether I agree if we are talking about mainstream culture. I mean, the fact, obviously, that Andrew Tate Mm. is a celebrity, despite being one of the most biggest shitheads of all time. Mm. Um, But he's not he's not on Channel 4 Mm. with everyone giggling at what he said. So I wonder whether actually mainstream the mainstream has improved in that respect and the misogynists are having to look elsewhere. Oh, no, no. Yeah, I would say I, I disagree. I think I'm. I think culture actually has changed. I'm not sure that everyone, you know, attitudes have changed for everyone. If you look at the polling, I think certainly, you know, attitudes towards a lot of stuff have gone better, have got better, but they're still by no means perfect. Um, And especially I think it's quite striking. So weirdly, not that much in the UK, but if you look at places like Poland, South Korea, the US, etc., you do have a lot of young men becoming more conservative than those who came, let's say, like 10 years, five, 10 years before them. But I think if we're just talking culturally, I would say that absolutely things have got better. I mean, I think it also just depends on how you're defining mainstream culture. Because for an Andrew Tate fan, Andrew Tate is now mainstream, right? And historical mainstream media is getting fewer viewers than Andrew Tate is getting. The other thing is, if you're in the Andrew Tate orbit, I think it's a really good example. You're not getting any other messages. And that's also what's changed, right? You're you're in a a silo of a certain thing to, to the point where you are only delivered that type of content. There's no context. There's no alternative views. And I think that's an important change as well in terms of how people get information. I mean, that, that, that is a good point about what we mean by mainstream. But I suppose if we're talking ones where, where it's sort of, there should be gatekeepers on, the, you know, the BBC. They should not be broadcasting uh, um, Russell Brand uh, having a laugh with Jimmy Savile about bringing along uh, like a naked woman and so on. And there is a sort of expectation that, you know, and that you shouldn't have like a, a, a NBC talk show host being a, a bully. Or, or whatever. Do you think that this, that being reminded of some of the kind of the mainstream cruelty adds context to this sort of cliche that young people uh, are killing comedy with their puritanical ways and you can't say anything this day, these days? It's sort of the, the, the anti-woke, knee-jerk anti-woke position. It seems that you could show them this reel of clips and go, well, this is probably why there has been a reaction. The question around, like, why has the reaction been what it is? It, it, you know, I see in the mainstream, yes, that reaction. I think Marina's Hyde's piece was really an amazing lens through which to, to think about it, where she sort of said, I got it wrong too. 
But I wonder if people who who would maybe side with him or not think he's done anything that terrible would see that it would reflect on it. I mean, I, I sort of look back on these things as a almost 40 year old now, and I feel really icky that that happened. It's sort of like, I can't believe that's what the world was like. I mean, the same thing with Sinead O'Connor, right? The host of S- a Saturday Night Live the week after she was on and ripped up a picture of the Pope. Joe Pesci said he wanted to punch her in the face, right? And, and, and that was network. And that was seen as socially acceptable. So, you know, it's it's such a hard thing to look back and and out of context around that moment. I mean, it's objectively wrong, right? And it's objectively bad. We we it was bad then. It is bad now. Um, but whether that's being picked up broadly culturally, I just I don't know. I don't I don't know. Joe, yeah, to get back to to brands specifically, of course, after the period, uh, this sort of initial wave of celebrity and uh, the period during which all these um, alleged offences took place, he reinvented himself very successfully as a, as a champion of the left. Now, I'm always wary of assuming who knew what. There were rumours. I'm not sure I heard these rumours. I thought he was he was kind of a sleazy and annoying. I don't think I'd heard rumours of this nature. Um, so I'm not saying that some of the people who embraced him at that time knew, had been tipped off or whatever. But out there in plain sight was misogyny. It was part of his act. Is that something that seems icky now that he was allowed to be a huge voice for the sort of the pre-Corbyn left, despite what was out there in his act on television, on the radio. Yeah, I think it does seem icky. I also think there is this massive misconception sometimes that we think of misogyny as being kind of exclusively on the right. Actually, some of the people who I know who would call themselves the most progressive have had some of the most problematic views that I've ever encountered. I think that there is actually, and uh, in in my short foray into online dating uh, when I was single, you quite often, and this is a very strange snapshot into my world, um, but you find men, millennial men actually is what I quite often find, uh, branding themselves as feminists. And then when you dig down into what their views actually are, they're, they're very, very, um, very, very problematic. Look, woke fishing, isn't that the thing as well, like, which I love that term so much, yeah. which I mean, I hate it, obviously, and resent that it exists, but yeah. Yeah, completely right. So you kind of get drawn in by the fact that they know that they should respect women and respect women's rights. They say, obviously, I'm a feminist. And then behind closed doors, they're, they're not. So I, I don't think that we can always kind of be completely kind of closed door to that. But, you know, I think looking back on it now, I imagine people make different decisions. I think there is just a cautionary tale there, right, for politicians and people in the public eye of not jumping on the bandwagon. And that is a massive political lesson that so many people have to learn. Be careful who you photograph next to, et cetera, et cetera. Um, You just never know what might come out, I suppose. This, I think, has been probably the biggest... I would say the biggest Me Too investigation in, in in quite a long time. And, of course, there was a huge wave of allegations that came out after the Weinstein investigation a few years ago, and then that sort of subsided. Now, there's been rumours about a lot of other celebrities, especially comedians. I don't. And we're going to name all of them now. <laughs> no, Marie probably knows all of them. I'm very, very bad at knowing these rumours. I, I actually don't know which comedians these are. I probably actually know one of them, but generally I don't. Um <laughs> Do you expect there that more will come out 
you know, given that, the, I mean, there should be more of a reckoning. And yet this took four years to investigate, to get, to get all the sources, you know, lined up, to get it all lawyered. Do, um, do, you, do you expect we're going to be seeing more coming out? over the next few weeks and months? Yes, is, is the short answer. But the longer answer is if you listen to female comedians, you know, they're saying that they could have named a dozen comedians that this could have been. I know my WhatsApp before we knew what the investigation was going to be. Um, and people always think that people who work for news organisations know a lot more than they do. I had no idea who it was going to be, right. uh, the allegations about before it came out. Um, but a lot of People outside of uh, my work were texting me saying, who is it? Who is it? And, you know, these things are very uh, closely guarded secret because obviously uh, it's very important that the integrity of the investigation is mm. is maintained. Um, but people were sending me various names of things they'd heard, of people they'd heard things about. So I think there must be other people investigating these people. But it just goes to show the difficulty in getting this kind of incredibly detailed, incredibly well-sourced investigative journalism across the line. I would say that, wouldn't I? Because it's within my own company, but I think there have been many people outside of the company saying that as well. Yeah, yeah. No, and I, correct I, me if I'm happy. wrong, but in my, my, in my, if my memory serves me rightly from my time at Hacked Off, it's also that libel law is quite different in the UK compared to oh, yeah. the US. Right. Oh, yeah. And it's much more difficult to publish in the UK an yeah. allegation. Mm. Yeah. Which is exactly um, why we didn't hear about the Jimmy Savile stuff until after he died, right? Because you can't defame the dead. Marie, to wrap up, it strikes me there's something very weird about pop culture, about the, the, the role of the edgelord in today's pop culture, is that there was something you could get from like indie sleaze, sort of in the, like in the music scene. There was something you could get in comedy. The, you know, the transgression has always been a part of it, whether you're talking about, you know, Lenny Bruce or the Sex mm. Pistols ever, always a very vibrant part of, you know, popular mm. culture. And yet, after we saw with the alt-right message boards and what turned into kind of, you know, the MAGA army, mm. is that we saw that a lot of this stuff that was dressed up as irony was just real. It's like, oh, you were, you were pretending to be anti-Semitic, but you were anti-Semitic. You were pretending to be racist, but you were racist. Mm. And that now, anytime I see some kind of like youth sort of cultural movement, like it's mm. quite, it's not a big deal at all, but the Dime Square one in New York. Uh, and yeah. you go, we're trying to bring back, you know, not being so politically correct and, you know, and, you, and being a little bit kind of edgy and dirty and sleazy. And then you see their opinions and it's just like, oh, you just sound like, you just sound right wing. Mm. And so that it's almost the, the political... Yeah, you sound like someone's Tory uncle. You're yeah. not being like... Yeah. The, the landscape <laughs> has shifted so that however much sort of one might look back historically and see that certain kinds of, of transgression, which did not involve abuse and, and, and so on, were kind of legitimate and sort of spicy, that we are mm. now in a space where the only backlash against, you know, wokeness or whatever mm. is just going to be really grim like i haven't seen anybody who's found a way to be sort of you know mm. to, to, to sort of to sort of walk that line without simply sounding right wing um so i think uh the problem is entirely structural uh the problem is that we're all online um, we're all online and we're all sharing the same spaces so everyone's together all the time which i know i've def definitely repeated as a mantra uh, on this podcast before uh, even wrote a book about it but I mean, it's the fact that everyone's together all the time so actually you know there are probably you know i've probably definitely made some edgy jokes before to my friends in the pub that i would never post on twitter or anything because actually it would be very easy for actual 
you know, dodgy people to see that and be like, that's not a joke. That must be what she believes. And, you know, and that, that would embolden mm. them or even sort of stuff. And I got really angry recently um, on Twitter about, so I think all, all, all that trend of like, you know, girl jobs and girl dinner and girl things and girl that, all of which, again, kind of trad, where if you follow all of them, you know, girls eat like little birds at lunch. They just pick at things and then they have a job where they don't really do much because it's a girl job and they do girl math because actually they're not very good with money. And I'm like, OK, well, like, you know, taken one by one, fine. And actually several of them, are actually that's quite funny. What was it? The one who's like, um, well, actually the girls Roman Empire is the Romanovs. And I was like, fuck, they got me. I love the Romanovs. <laughs> Um, but put all together, you know, in those spaces, you will have all the alt-right, all the horrible men going, well, there you have it. Actually, women want to not eat a lot and have fake jobs and they're not good with their own money, so they shouldn't handle it. So suddenly it becomes a lot less fun. So I think, yeah, again, it's just a structural problem about the way the internet is built. Irony has been ruined. That is the end of that bumper extra bit included episode of Oh God, What Now? Thank you so much to Jerry. Thank you. Marie. Thank you. And our guest, Kyle. Thank you very much. Finally, our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, a salute to our generous supporters. You two could join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots more. Search Oh God, What Now Patreon to find out how. Hello, and many thanks from me to Paul Higgins, Emma and Jackie Sexton. Thanks for your generosity from me to Daniel Parker Bates, Philippa Williams and Tim Forshaw. And thanks to Holly Larkin, Scuba AI and renewing her Patreon support like all the cool kids. It's a welcome back to Rachel Cousineau. We will see you next time. Oh God, What Now is presented by Dorian Linsky with Jerry Scott and Marie LeConte. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese, with assistant production from Adam Wright. Socials by Jess Harpin. Art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production. <laughs>